This is Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting live from Johannesburg on the frequencies 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. I'm your host. My name is Kobe Diwan Amani. Side-by-side me is Amanda Machaka and Tamikosa. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. Our top story is this. Our Zimbabwe Electoral Commission says it is ready for the July 31st elections and Uganda's leading opposition figure arrested yet again. In our economics news, South Sudan starts closing oil wells in Unity State and in sports, Cameroon back in international football after FIFA lifts its worldwide ban. All these are more coming up at first. It's time for the news. Here's Amanda. Good evening. Zimbabwe Electoral Commission says it's ready for the July 31st elections, with 8 million ballot papers being printed. This despite the Registrar-General, Tobaiwa Mudede, revealing that the total number of registered voters in Zimbabwe is 6.4 million. Special voting for uniformed forces who will be on duty during the elections was marked by chaotic scenes after voting material failed to arrive in some areas last week. Simon Muchemwa reports from Harare. The Zimbabwe election body has indicated that it is now ready for the July 31 elections with the printing of ballot papers which has begun. According to the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, services of additional companies to complete the printing of the 8 million ballot papers have been secured. Whilst Rita Makarao, chairperson of the election body, says an additional 35% has been given to the earlier total figure of 6.2 million voters on the voters' roll, the Registrar-General has revealed only 6.4 million voters are registered. Election officials in Mali say the country's presidential election is set to go ahead on Sunday despite logistical and technical glitches. This includes a voters' roll which is missing the names of tens of thousands of registered voters. Sunday's election is the first to be held since last year's coup and the international community has pressured Mali to hold the ballot, hoping to return the nation to a constitutional rule. The problems with the electoral list as well as security and logistical challenges in the north of the country a risk robbing the future president of the very legitimacy the election is seeking to restore. Ugandan police have again arrested the country's leading opposition figure, Kiza Besije, in what is seen as the latest crackdown on dissent in the country. They accuse him of planning to stage illegal rallies. Besije has been detained several times since he championed opposition demonstrations over high fuel and food prices that rocked parts of the capital and other cities in 2011. Opposition activists last week said they were planning more rallies against what they saw as unfair taxes. Wafula Ogutu is member of Parliament for the Opposition Democratic Party. They said he was going to incite the public, and that they, they suspected he was going to incite the public because they arrested him from his home. They, he was going to town and just near his home, they arrested him. They blocked his road and they, he came out and sat out. He, he came out of his car and sat down and they, then they, they came for him and pushed him in their car and they drove him uh, several kilometers away from the town, in a different district actually sort of like banishing him, but later they released him late in the night and they took him back to his home. And then this morning, Dr. Wiz was supposed to appear in court again for some of the, one of those many cases against him, which is always trying to be suspect he to incite his violence. And when he left the court, he was driving home and again he was arrested in town. The African Union has extended the stay of its troops in Republic of the Sudan's troubled Darfur region for one year. The extension comes more than a week after seven Tanzanian peacekeepers were killed there by unknown gunmen. James Manula reports. The situation remains tense and unpredictable in Republic of the Sudan's Darfur state where seven African Union peacekeepers were killed more than a week ago by unknown gunmen. Darfur is in the western part of Republic of the Sudan. The 
state has been the epicenter of fighting between Khartoum troops and various rebel forces including justice and equality movement known by its acronym as GEM. United Nations has described the conflict in the restless state as the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Rebel groups fighting the government in Darfur accused the Khartoum government of suppressing, oppressing and neglecting the black people of Darfur. And finally, a class action case brought by foreign nationals who claim they've been abused and discriminated against is underway at the North Gauteng High Court in South Africa. It was brought to court as an urgent application by the Somali Association of South Africa and others. The respondents in the matter are the Department of Home Affairs and the police. This follows the police's confiscation of goods and arrests of foreign traders in Limbopo province in July last year. The application is set to be heard over two days. Channel Africa News. That was Amanda Machaka with the news. She'll be back at 17.30 Central African time with your headlines. On to our stories for the day. Zimbabwe Electoral Commission says it is ready for the July 31st elections with 8 million ballot papers being printed. This despite the Registrar-General Tobaiwa Mudede revealing that the total of registered voters in Zimbabwe is 6.4 million. Special voting for uniformed forces who will be on duty during the elections was marred by chaotic scenes after voting material failed to arrive in some areas last week. Simon Muchemo reports from Arare. The Zimbabwe election body has indicated that it is now ready for the July 31 elections with the printing of ballot papers which has begun. According to the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, services of additional companies to complete the printing of the 8 million ballot papers have been secured. Whilst Rita Makarao, chairperson of the election body, says an additional 35% has been given to the earlier total figure of 6.2 million voters on the voters' roll, the Registrar General has revealed only 6.4 million voters are registered. Mundede updated the nation Monday regarding the printing of the voters roll. Now we come to the printing of the voters roll. The printing is in progress and I can tell you we are moving very well but we are moving fast because we have to meet the required time to finish. As soon as we are through we will start distribution of these voters rolls to respective provinces and the provinces will receive them and transmit them to the respective districts. Although Zek said it is ready, their figures of 8 million ballot papers to be printed are not tallying with the Registrar General's office. Mudede said the total number of registered voters is 6.4 million. Our total population of the voters includes those who were already on our voters roll. Now this is the total. The total is um, 6.4 million. That's the number we have brought and uh, we shall be informing you um, as we go on. There are little figures to be added but that's what we have at the moment. The figure of these statistics include the people who are in our registration system. Mudede urged Zimbabweans not to rely on the various copies of voters' rolls in circulation at the moment. Political parties have even complained that the voters' roll is in shambles, containing thousands of names of dead people. The civic society organizations have queried the high number of dead people on the voters' rolls when their names are supposed to be removed automatically once a death certificate is issued. This prompted some unknown organizations to create an electronic database which Zimbabweans are now relying upon. Mudede said the electronic copy on the internet did not come from his office. He gives the pattern of voter registration done so far. The initial voter registration was 747,982. Transfers, those who transferred to be in other uh, wards, from the old wards, 234,354. A number of people who inspected the voters' roll, 860,000. 
389 national identity cards 492,429 birth certificates that's BD6 those who were given 143,420 the death certificates we issued 16,859 Meanwhile, Finance Minister Tendai recently said his office has availed more money for the July 31 elections. On election funding, the total budget for elections is 130 million US dollars. That's the budget that uh, is on. This is a comprehensive budget that covers a lot of things that have to do with an election. The biggest component, the most expensive component, is actually the PDMs that are paid to civil servants. He added more funds are required and polls are just a week away. But we are far away from meeting the target. We don't have the money and we can't borrow. The market was crowded out by the 40 million US dollars that we borrowed for the referendum. We can't increase taxes. I don't want to increase taxes. I refuse to increase taxes because uh, it will just burden an economy that is already suffering under the weight of the uncertainty of elections. And as I said in my first quarter review, Q1 review, we lost three points of our GDP in the first quarter. And to the extent that there will be Zimbabwe on the 1st of August 2018, we have to balance. We can't kill the economy over an election that comes in one day. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Ugandan police have again arrested the country's leading opposition figure, Kiza Besije, in what is seen as the latest crackdown on dissent in the oil-rich African country. They accuse him of planning to stage illegal rallies. Kiza Besije has been detained several times since he championed opposition demonstrations over high fuel and food prices that rocked parts of the capital and other cities in 2011. Opposition activists last week said they were planning more rallies against what they saw as unfair taxes on piped water and kerosene. More from Wafula Ogutu, Member of Parliament for the Opposition Democratic Party. Well, they said he was going to incite the public, that they, they suspected he was going to incite the public because they arrested him from his home. They, he was going to town and uh, just near his home, they arrested him. They blocked his road and they, he came out and sat out. He, he came out of his car and sat down and they, then they, they came for him and pushed him in their car and they drove him uh, several kilometers away from the town, in a different district actually sort of like banishing him, but later they released him late in the night and they took him back to his home. And then this morning, Dr. Wiesel was supposed to appear in court again for some of the, one of those many cases against him, which is always trying to, that the suspect is going to incite violence. And when he left the court, he was driving home and again he was arrested in town because people were greeting him. When they saw him, they began greeting him and they were excited. So the police came and dispatched them and tear gas them and arrested him again and took him to the central police station. So he's not allowed, he's not, he has no freedom to move freely in the town. He can't go to a shop, he can't go to visit his doctor, he can't go to visit his banker, he can't go to visit his lawyer, he can't pass through the town. He's not allowed to pass through the town of Kampala. And the other time also, he was going to Western Uganda where he's born, and there's a town they are called in Barara. They refused him to drive through that town. They arrested him and they passed him through the town in a police car, and they allowed him on after he had, I mean, he had gone to the town. So he's been being harassed and persecuted by the, the president. Now, Mr. Besija has been arrested by police a number of times over the past couple of months and even years. As opposition, how do you view these constant arrests by police on uh, Mr. Besija? Well, the opposition, what can we do? We, we have protested. Uh, I'm a member of parliament and we have talked about this in the parliament. We have asked the government to explain the Ministry of Internal Affairs that they don't say anything. They just fight that he's causing trouble, that he cannot be allowed to go and address anybody or to meet people in the civic center of Kampala, that he is going to cause, he's going to, uh, to disrupt business. But we know that it's a political persecution. We know that they are scared of him. They think that if Dr. Besige is allowed to go in the middle of the town, then he's going to sort of have some sort of Tahariri Square like it was in, in Cairo. That's what they are scared about. Where is uh, Mr. Besige now and is he fine where he is? 
Right now, Dr. Wesley is in the CPS. He's a prisoner of police. He's in the detainee, the police. He will be mostly in the evening. When everybody has gone home, then they will drive him home, up to his home. That's what they do. They have been doing that lot for the last one year. They don't let him. They just drive, arrest him and, and drive him to his home and close the gate. And, and then put the barricades along the road. So he's in, he's in the police cell in the Kampala Central Police Station. Now the opposition had said um, last week uh, it plans to have more rallies against what they see as unfair taxes on uh, piped water. Is uh, the Democratic Party part of this opposition that plans to have these rallies? And if you are, are you not concerned that police will again uh, try and arrest uh, Mr. Besiji? Yeah, the government do not allow us to have rallies in Kampala. We don't allow us to have rallies in Kampala. All the empty spaces have been, uh, have been banned and they, they tell us we go to the main, the main square, and it's called Colombo Independent Square, and that is under the president's office. If you want to go there, we should ask for permission from the, the president's office, uh, the state house, and they don't allow us. Uh, so basically, the government is not allowing the M opposition to do any mobilization of the of rallies, uh, even as MPs. Yeah. They, they aren't allowing us. But the president is campaigning. The president of Museven is campaigning. He's been campaigning for uh, 2016 elections, and he's not allowing us to do that at all. And so we are now looking to discussing the electoral reforms. We want to to take electoral reforms to parliament and to have asked them. And the government is not, is not interested in those reforms, but we are going to be pushing for electoral reforms. Because I see if we die today, they are not allowed, we may not even have elections. We are going to have violence next this time around. And I believe uh, several opposition parties again today and some civil society organizations in Uganda were planning to petition the Constitutional Court to impeach President Yoweri. Is um, your party part of this group that was planning to launch this uh, Constitutional Court application? Yes, impeaching the president is a very difficult thing because we need to we need at least two thirds of parliament to impeach the president. And where it is difficult is that the president seven has majority of the members of parliament. So the opposition cannot reach the numbers that he can afford him not one third, one third, which is about over 130 percent, mean 130 people. It's difficult to get. But yes, there are moves like that because of the president has been abusing the constitution over and over. Yes, the recent next one year has abused the constitution several times. Huh? But to teach him is very difficult, I know that. We know that even those who are moving around saying that. You know, it's difficult to impeach the president because we don't have numbers in parliament to start off the impeachment. And that was Wafula Ogutu, member of parliament for Uganda's opposition Democratic Party, on the line, talking to Ntlantlamatlangu. Human Rights Watch says M23 rebels have executed at least 44 people and raped at least 61 women and girls since March 2013 in the eastern DRC. The rights group says local residents and rebel deserters reported recent forced recruitment of men and boys by the M23 in both Rwanda and the Congo. More on the findings from Karina Tsetskian from Human Rights Watch. This document describes abuses by the M23 rebel group in eastern Congo since March. So it's concentrating on the last few months. And Human Rights Watch has documented a number of serious abuses by the M23, in particular summary executions. Uh, We documented at least 44 cases of summary executions, as well as rapes. We documented more than 61 cases of rapes of women and young girls by the M23. And the third category of abuses concerns forced recruitment of men and young boys by the M23, both in Congo and in Rwanda. And can you just take us through the process of putting together this report? How was the research conducted? Well, we conducted field research over several months since March. We conducted more than 100 interviews with a a range of sources, including former M23 combatants who left the movement, who ran away or who who deserted um, between March and and July. We also interviewed many civilians, just ordinary residents who live near the Congo-Rwanda border uh, on both sides of the border. And we also interviewed people who've been victims of some of these abuses, for example, people who've been victims of rape or people who have been recruited by force into the M23 and then managed to escape. 
And just how has these atrocities that have been committed against this woman affected them? I mean, Human Rights Watch says at least 61 women and girls have been raped. Have you had the opportunity just to sit down and talk with them and find out how they were affected by um, what happened to them? Well, indeed, it's uh, the problem of, of rape by armed groups in Congo is not a new phenomenon, of course, and it is something that, that has uh, not only affected the, the individual women concerned, but also the communities that they come from in a, in a very deep way. One of the problems is, of course, that there's still a lot of stigma attached to rape and also fear of reprisals um, because sometimes what we found, what these women were telling us or these girls were telling us is that after the M23 fighters raped them, they would then threaten them and, and tell them that if they spoke about it or even if they went to seek medical treatment, they would be killed. So what this means is that many women are actually afraid of, of reporting cases of rape. So the number that, that we've documented is probably way below what the real number is. The leaders of uh, the M23, have they seen this report and what has been their response if uh, they did indeed see this report? Well, we contacted them several times before publishing the report in order to try to get their response to our findings. We contacted in particular the military leader of the M23, Sultani Makanga, but every time, unfortunately, he was unavailable to to speak to us, so, so we have not yet received their response to the allegations. I should say in the, in the past, um, because of course these kinds of patterns are not new, uh, these kinds of abuses um, have characterized the M23 since the beginning of the rebellion last year. And in the past, we have talked directly with them. We've given them our documents, we've discussed with them, and their response in the past has been to deny categorically that their troops are committing abuses, they've denied killing civilians, they've denied raping women. So we're now waiting to see how they respond to these latest allegations. And I see here Rwanda is also implicated in this report. Um, What has the government said about the findings? Well, again, uh, unfortunately, we we were not able to speak to the Rwandan authorities about this. We contacted them several times, including the military spokesman, to try to get his response to our findings before we published. But unfortunately, he was not available to take our calls. Again, in, in the past, the Rwandan government has always categorically denied supporting the M23. They've denied it not not only to Human Rights Watch, but they've denied it, for example, at the UN level with other international interlocutors. They categorically deny it, even though the evidence on the ground starkly contradicts those denials. So, for example, in, in our findings, as well as findings of other organizations such as the UN Group of Experts, we've documented the way that support for the M23 is still coming from Rwanda in various forms. So the M23 have been receiving weapons, ammunition, other supplies from Rwanda. There have also been um, efforts to recruit young men and boys inside Rwanda to go and join the M23. So amongst the people who've been forcibly recruited, there are not only Congolese, but also many Rwandans. And these include civilians, including young boys, teenagers, as well as demobilized soldiers who are being recruited in Rwanda and sent across the border to join the M23. Human Rights Watch researcher Karina Tatsakian on the line from London talking to Ntlantlamasangu. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. In a bid to contain the mounting complaints from business people in Rwanda, Burundi and the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Kenya Ports Authority has opened liaison offices in Kigali and Rwanda that will bring the Mombasa Port services to the doorsteps of businesses in the Rwandese capital. The opening of the office comes amid numerous complaints from the business community in Rwanda about delays at the port of Mombasa and the processing of their cargo. But Kenyan Port Authority officials said this office in 
intends to sort out all the grievances made by their customers in their region. This report from Sylvanus Karemera in Kigali. The Cabinet Secretary for Transport and Infrastructure in Kenya, Michael Kamau, says it is within the newly elected government in Kenya to make changes at the port of Mombasa in order to best serve their customers in the region. The opening of this office is a very serious indication that we mean business. It's an investment both in terms of space and the human resources that we are bringing and the support that we are going to provide to this office in order to ensure that uh, the port of Mombasa remains the key port of entry into East Africa. Our purpose is only one, to be competitive, to provide good service, and to make our customers happy. But it is still not clear if this office will be the only happiness for their customers given the ongoing concerns by truck drivers using the port of Mombasa. They say, apart from delays at the port, they still face some hurdles on their way from Mombasa with the policemen at the roadblocks and the bridge stations demanding money forcibly. They just disturb us. At any checkpoint you reach, you have to pay something. They don't tell us what is that money for? Others use bad language to demand some money. We wonder what advantage of being in the East African community if the situation continues like this. But Minister Mike Kamau says such an upset is a history now because of some changes made at the port of Mombasa as well as tackling the issue of non-tariff barriers that have been drawing complaints from business communities in Rwanda, Burundi and the Eastern DRC. Report this that the Commissioner of Customs of Kenya, who since independence has been working from Nairobi, shifted to Mombasa to handle the complaints of any uh, people who have issues. Before, if you had a complaint or a problem that needed to be solved by the Commissioner of Customs, you are driving or flying to Mombasa for your problem to be solved. I have said there is no NTB. The only NTB probably are the normal, maybe there could be a Thagare here, which I have not had, but the issues to do with police, and I was with the Inspector General of Kenya Police yesterday, before I came here, there is not a single roadblock. Rwanda, as a landlocked country, will fully benefit from this new initiative, as the liaison office will bring the Mombasa Seaport service next door in Kigali. The business community has in the past had to travel to Kenya to clear their goods and sort out any grievances. Now, the Kigali office will handle all the complaints and then solve the Rwandan importers and exporters. Last month, President Paul Kagame of Rwanda, President Yuval Museven of Uganda, and the President Uhuru Kenyatta of Kenya met in Kampala, Uganda, and later issued directives on how to best ease doing business at the port of Mombasa. Now, Minister Michael Kamau says thereafter, a process is ongoing. We have an office like this in uh, in Kampara which was opened uh, a long time ago. So I said improve every day. It is a motto that we have. Do better than you did yesterday. Kenya has been a key investor in Rwanda in the past 10 years. Rwanda and Kenya are the only countries in the East African community that have waived working permits for their nationals working in the either country. A number of Kenyan businesses have since been growing steadily in Rwanda in the past a few years. Silvanus Kalemera Channel Africa News, Kigali. Time now for our news headlines. Here's Amanda Machaka standing by. Good evening. Zimbabwe Electoral Commission says it's ready for the July 31st elections, with 8 million ballot papers being printed. This despite the Registrar General, Dubai Wamudede, revealing that the total number of registered voters in Zimbabwe is 6.4 million. Special voting for uniformed forces who will be on duty during the elections was marred by chaotic scenes after voting material failed to arrive in some areas last week. Election officials in Mali say the country's presidential election is set to go ahead on Sunday, despite logistical and technical glitches. This includes a voter's roll, which is missing the names of tens of thousands of registered voters. Sunday's election is the first to be held since last year's coup, and the international community has pressured Mali to hold the ballot, hoping to return the nation to constitutional rule. 
and Ugandan police have again arrested the country's leading opposition figure, Kiza Besije, in what is seen as the latest crackdown on dissent in the country. They accuse him of planning to stage illegal rallies. Besije has been detained several times since he championed opposition demonstrations over high fuel and food prices that rocked parts of the capital and other cities in 2011. And those were news headlines. Welcome if you've just tuned in. You're listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Kopediwa Namani, your host. Back home, South Africa's Deputy Minister of Health, Dr. Gwen Ramakopa, is visiting provinces to meet with shortlisted youth who applied for the SA Cuba Medical Students Training Program. Now, the purpose of these visits is to brief selected youths about processes of the 2013-2014 academic year in Cuba and the program in general. The visits commenced today in the country's Gauteng province and will proceed to other provinces right throughout the week. For more on this, we're joined on the line by Dr. Dr. Gwen Ramokhopa, good evening and welcome to Channel Africa, Doctor. Uh, good evening and uh, good evening to listeners as well. Thanks for joining us. Now briefly, what criteria is used to select prospective medical students for this particular program? Um, firstly, it is uh, students who have uh, received uh, a metric exemption in their passing, the metric uh, results. Uh, and in addition, uh, who have uh, a minimum um, uh, four points in uh, four critical subjects uh, of uh, science, mathematics, uh, biology, as well as uh, English. But overall, they must have uh, achieved uh, a uh, university entrance. Uh, the second important uh, uh, criteria is that it should be uh, children from uh, previously disadvantaged uh, communities, and uh, they must also uh, have uh, a, a, a commitment uh, to work back to in the provinces that they have uh, recruited them for the number of years that they've been uh, funded for these studies. Would you say the program has managed to uh, address shortages in human resources, especially in the country's in the country's public health sector since it was initiated? I think it was in the mid nineties. Uh, most definitely, it has uh, reduced the shortages, but I'm also going to hasten to say that we still have a long way to go. Uh, so we've just uh, done an analysis of. Uh, the shortages of uh, medical doctors in particular, and we have a, a, a shortfall of about 20,000. And um, we have also engaged with our eight medical schools in the country uh, to ensure that uh, we um, increase uh, our local training platform in the country. And the increase uh, from 2010 started with about 40 additional uh, placements for uh, students and uh, this year it has increased to about 240 or so. So, yes, we are uh, making a difference, but we have a long way to go. That is why we have uh, then taken up this uh, offer of Cuba to train a minimum of 1,000 uh, students every year, at least for the next three to five years, to deal with this uh, gap. And on the other hand, there's been some heavy criticism, Dr. Ramakopa, of this program, especially from certain medical experts saying things like freshly trained South African doctors sometimes return home without the necessary skills to carry out their work after the program. Is there any truth to this? The medical science is a universal science, the universal language, and um, uh, the, the, the only difference... Uh, between uh, a doctor trained in South Africa and a doctor trained in Cuba or anywhere else in the country, for that matter, whether the United States or the UK, is uh, the exposure to the uh, disease profile uh, of the particular country. It's not the basic knowledge and the basic skills. And it is uh, for this that the final year that the students do, because there's a year of consolidating especially uh, clinical uh, knowledge, they do it in South Africa. 
and uh, that 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 year uh, enables them uh, to see more cases of, uh, uh, for instance, HIV AIDS, which are hardly there in Cuba, more cases of TB, which uh, are also hardly there in Cuba, uh, and uh, uh, to understand the health system in South Africa. Uh, but overall, the quality of the training uh, is uh, uh, of international standards, and the impact in the health system. Uh, that uh, the these doctors uh, are well, we seem to have lost uh, our uh, South Africa's Deputy Minister of Health, that's uh, Dr. Gwen Ramakope. She was still telling us about uh, interventions that the Health Ministry has made and particularly about the SA Cuba training that uh, students have applied for. She's uh, touring the country, really, and has started in the Houting province, and she's still going to proceed to other provinces throughout the rest of the week. Really just... Uh, Briefing selected youths about the processes of the 2013-2014 academic year in Cuba and and the program in general. Well, we've we've got the gist of what she was trying to say. Should we get her back? The conversation will continue, but more after this. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. On to environmental matters now. Greenpeace East Asia in a report published today reveals that the Shinua Group, the world's biggest coal producer by volume, is exploiting water resources in Inner Mongolia at a shocking scale. Li Yan, Greenpeace East Asia climate and energy manager, says the company's operations have sparked social unrest and caused severe ecological damage, including desertification, impacting farmers and herders of cattle and sheep who are facing reduced water supplies and uh, alarmed by plans for an expansion of the Shinua project, the International Environmental Organization is calling for the company to end water grab and for the Chinese government to impose strict supervision and enforcement of the principles governing coal to chemical projects. Greenpeace has done over 11 times of field investigation. So we find out the biggest state-owned coal company, Shenhua Group, who is also by volume the largest coal extraction company in the world, is over-extracting water in the middle of Indo Mongolia and actually in a very arid region. And this water has been transported for over 100 kilometers to their coal-to-liquid plant. And then over the last eight years, this over-extraction of water has already caused a massive drop of groundwater level in the water source region and it's making local ecological degradation very severely, including lakes shrinking and sand dunes expansion. And it's also causing local livelihood at the expense of difficulties in drinking water and for farmlands and for livestock. So we can only describe it at scale that of water grab. So it's really industry expansion at the cost of grabbing water from agricultural use and from people's livelihood usage and also from ecological usage. And this destruction must be stopped. Now, Lee, this Order's Code to Liquid Demonstration project has been in operation since March 2007. So if you could tell us more as to what type of damage has been experienced in the area. This project has been in operation since 2008, actually, but the water extraction project as the infrastructure for the coal to liquid, that had started being put into practice since 2006. And then because massive amount of water is being drilled from that place and transported away from the region, and also because that is actually a very arid region, this is at the center of one of the largest desert and middle parts of middle western parts of China. So this has caused very severe ecological degradation. And we, in our few trips, we saw one major local lake called Subinao that has shrinked by two-thirds in its area. And that only happened just in the last eight, seven years. 
At the same time, the water level dropped, I think, to the scale of 100 meter, and this is judged by local residents' life experience when they used to be able just to drill wells and pump water at less than 20 meters and even more easier than that 10 years ago. And right now, instead, they will have to pay the engineers to drill down to over 100 meters. So this is all a very strong signs of depletion of the local groundwater. And that is a very precious source of water in the middle of desert. This is really the essence that's supplying this part of the grassland as an oasis in the desert. And there are many more sites of ecological degradation that I can describe, including also desertification, sand expansion, and then trees being planted to prevent the sand over the last three decades now are dying, drying up, and the vegetation is being destroyed. So all this is having a major impacts on local people's livelihood. I think I would also need to point out that this is only the first phase of Shenhua's cultural liquid project in Eldos, in this place, and it's producing a bit over one million tons of fuel in their plant. But actually, they've got not yet approval, but they have in the pipeline even larger expansion project of the second and the third production line of coal liquid and they're also planning to have a coal gas plant in the same place. So if they if their expansion really happens, the water demands for Xinhua Group in that place would actually triple in less than five years time. And then so we were really, really concerned about what irreversible impact would it bring if they continue this level of destruction or even tripleize it. And that's the reason why we have done this investigation and we have made strong calls for them to stop the destruction. Now, what has been the response of the local communities living in the area with regards to their water being diverted for this mining project? Yes, we have carried out 11 field trips in that region. We've talked to many local communities and we now know that there are about less than 205,000 households which is 5,400 people living on that water basin and depending on that groundwater supply. And then so we talked to many of them in different villages, and then they have been very upset about this drilling activity, ever starting from the very beginning of the drilling project. So even in 2003, when the company showed up in their homeland and started drilling wells, they were already expressing their concern. However, local government at the time told them that it's going to be fine, it's okay, it will not have a major impact on your grassland, and then it will not have problems with your farming exercise. And sadly, that wasn't the case. And then, so over the last 10 years, they have been making all the way oppositions towards this project, including sending letters to local government, including trying to seek for help, but then nothing, their situation has only get worse after the drilling really started in 2006. Mm-hmm. And so this is actually very problematic because in the legal process for the company to get licensed for water drilling in this type of area, they actually are required to get local communities consensus as a stakeholder evaluation practice. And then actually local people has always been opposing this, then we have very solid reason to question whether their license is a legal one. The illegal discharge of industrial wastewater, what could be said about it? Well, we know when we start to do the investigation to this plant, what we know that is as of a leading corporation on coal in China, and this project being the flagship pilot for coal chemical projects, especially for coal to liquid projects, they claim themselves to be almost zero discharge with a very advanced technology and also management. That's what they claim. But our finding in the local field trips has proven them wrong, that we find at least three places of illegal discharge. And in one of the places, we find a pond of very black-looking sewage water directly 500 meters away from their plants. And then we took samples from all those discharge places and we sent to authoritative Chinese as well as as international labs for testing. And we find out that these are not just dirty water. These are really toxic waters that are containing high level of toxic pollutants, some of them even cardiogenetic pollutants. So because of this, 
we have reason to question how they have really maintained their pollution discharge. And then we submitted actually a formal letter to the Ministry of Environmental Protection and asked for their inspection of the suspected illegal discharge of the Shenhua's company. So any response from uh, the Ministry about uh, their investigation? Not yet. We just sent it end of last week. And normally it takes several days for them to start to respond and take necessary action if they decided so. So we will follow up with this ministry, and then also we've also filed a document to Ministry of Water Resource as well, because what we found about the water grab facts from Xinhua Group, I think it's even more fundamental and even more worrying. So we're also waiting for water management policymakers to respond, and we will definitely pursue that to happen. Lin Yang, Greenpeace East Asia Climate and Energy Manager on the line from Beijing, China, talking there to Wandile Kalipa. It is 17.45 Central African time. Here's Amanda Machaka with your economics news. Good evening. South Sudan will shut down production at a clutch of oil blocks in Unity State from Thursday as it closes all wells at the insistence of Sudan in a row over alleged rebel support. Last week, the country said it had started shutting its output after Sudan said it would close two cross-border oil pipelines within 60 days unless South Sudan gave up support for Sudanese rebels. Juba denies backing them. Oil Minister Stephen Diudau has told reporters that engineers had so far started closing walls only to the country's main Palak fields in Blocks 3 and 7. Blocks 1, 2, 4 and 5 Sudan will start on Thursday. South Sudan only resumed oil production in April after turning off wells pumping around 300,000 barrels per day in January 2012 when both sides failed to agree on pipeline fees. The oil exports need to go through Sudan's Red Sea terminal in the absence of export facilities in the south, which seceded from Sudan in 2011 under a peace deal ending a civil war. The shutdown affects all sales of China National Petroleum Corporation, Malaysia's Petronas, and India's ONGC Vidush, which runs the oil fields in South Sudan together with the government. In a bid to contain the mounting complaints from business people in Rwanda, Burundi and the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Kenya Ports Authority has opened liaison offices in Kigali in Rwanda that will bring the Mombasa Port Services to the doorsteps of business in the Rwandese capital. The opening of the office comes amid numerous complaints from the business community in Rwanda about delays at the port of Mombasa in the processing of their cargo. But Kenyan Ports Authority officials said this office in tends to sort out all the grievances made by their customers in the region. Cabinet Secretary for Transport and Infrastructure in Kenya, Michael Kamau. The opening of this office is a very serious indication that we mean business. It's an investment both in terms of space and the human resources that we are bringing and the support that we are going to provide to this office in order to ensure that uh, the port of Mombasa remains the key port of entry into East Africa. Our purpose is only one, to be competitive, to provide good service, and to make our customers happy. Nigeria has expanded its list of fuel suppliers to include companies previously named in a multi-billion dollar subsidy fraud investigation. Africa's most populous country, which relies on fuel imports because it lacks the capacity to refine its own crude oil, tried to remove fuel subsidies last year, but was forced to partially reinstate them after a wave of strikes and protests. A parliamentary investigation later found the subsidies administration had facilitated around $6 billion of corruption over three years, with half the approved fuel imports never arriving or being sold to neighboring countries. Nigeria's gasoline subsidies sold up $6.2 billion last year, equivalent to 20% of the federal budget. And Algeria's spending on cereal, semolina and flour imports rose 7% in the first six months of this year from the same period in 2012. The bill reached $1.72 billion in the January-June 
to June period this year, up from $1.61 billion in the first half of 2012, according to Customs data, which provided no figure on volumes. Algeria, with a population of 37 million, is one of the world's biggest grain importers, buying an annual average of 5 million tons. The overall value of food imports for the January to June period this year was up 15% to $5.05 billion. And now for a look at financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 9.81 South African rand, at 0.65 to the British pound and at 0.75 to the euro. In static currencies, one U.S. dollar is worth 8.38 Botswana pulas and 5.44 Zambian kwachas. On to commodities, gold is trading at $1,328 and platinum at $1,424 an ounce. And finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $108.95 per barrel. And that's all for now. Good news in the soccer fraternity after FIFA lifts a worldwide ban on Cameroon. But here's Tami Kouza with your sporting update. In our sports update, World Football Governing Body FIFA has lifted its suspension of Cameroon Football Federation, the FECA Fort. The decision to lift the ban was announced last night after an 11-man normalization committee appointed by FIFA was given an access to the headquarters of FECA Fort. The normalization committee is headed by Professor Joseph Oona, one-time Minister of Sports in Cameroon. This means that Cameroon can now take part in international football with immediate effect. FIFA's representative, Primo Cavaro, through the interpreter, explains the process which led to the lifting of the sanctions. The work uh, so far, uh, what was important was the nomination of the normalization committee. And uh, to achieve that, uh, yes, there has been a lot of work. Of course, uh, we had to find the people, then to discuss with them, to check their availability, uh, their uh, uh, readiness to uh, to integrate uh, this normalization committee and uh, today yes uh, we installed the normalization committee i would say that uh, what is the most challenging is ahead with what the normalization committee has to do now Cameroon Minister of Sports and Physical Education Adum Gorua welcomed the FIFA's decision to lift the ban J'en profite ici évidemment au nom du gouvernement pour remercier He says he's very happy that FIFA has lifted the sanctions on Cameroon's football and prays that the normalization committee goes to work immediately. He says it is thanks to the intervention of the government of Cameroon and negotiations between Cameroon and FIFA that the ban was lifted. Meanwhile, FIFA Secretary General Jerome Falke has written to Uganda's Education and Sports Minister Honorable Jessica Alupo warning him of his interference in football matters. In a communication dated July the 19th to Education and Sports Minister, Falke reiterated the governing body's requirement that all FIFA members' association manage their affairs independently and without the influence of any third party as stipulated in Article 13 and 17 of the FIFA statutes, which could lead to suspension. And on local football, former Orlando Pirates and Kaiser Chiefs captain Jimmy Tao has officially hung up his soccer boots. He announced his retirement from football with immediate effect. Tao has been without a club since his contract was not renewed by Amakosi at the end of the season. The 33-year-old to reveal that he will now be focusing on his business and the launch of his new book expected to be out in December. Tao thanked both the chairperson of Pirates and Chiefs, Dr. Ivan Koza and Keza Mutaung, respectively, for giving him the opportunity to shine and captain their clubs. I never could believe that I would captain two of the biggest clubs in the country. And for me, I think that that serves as the highest accolade any uh, footballer would want to achieve locally. I'm just grateful for that. I'm grateful for the opportunity that I was granted. Also grateful for the <coughs> contribution and the change that I've made in people's lives, whether on the football pitch or off the field, because one way or another, I know that I've made a difference in somebody's life. 
And on cricket, the second one-day international between South Africa and Sri Lanka has been temporarily stopped due to heavy rain in Colombo. South Africa were on the verge of bowling Sri Lanka out when the heavy rain opened with the host on a competitive 223 for 9. Sri Lanka won the toss and elected to Bedford. Kumar Sangakara filtered the same team that beat South Africa in the opening match with the hope of reproducing the impressive display which saw his team comprehensively beating the proches last time. And now in rugby, the South African Eastern Cape rugby franchise, Southern Kings, will be fighting to keep their super rugby status when they take on the Lions in a first-leg relegation promotion match at the Nelson Mandela Bay Stadium in Port Elizabeth on Friday. Southern Kings director of rugby, Alan Solomon, says this is a do-or-die game for both teams. This match is obviously critical uh, to both franchises because the consequences of the match are extremely serious. The winner of these two matches remains in Super Rugby and I believe will remain in Super Rugby certainly through until 2016 when the format will be reconsidered by Senzo and we don't know what's going to happen there. The franchise that loses is out of Super Rugby. And finally with golf, this year's South African Gary Player Invitational Tournament promises to be exciting. It's the 30th anniversary of the Player Foundation, which has raised over 50 million US dollars for underprivileged children. The tournament, which brings together golfers, celebrities and businessmen to raise funds for the underprivileged children, will take place later this year. Gary Player says he is happy that his foundation is helpful to underprivileged children. Money go to these wonderful young children. It's really a, a great thrill and a blessing to be in a position to give somebody a place and a new life in the sun. That's your sports on Channel Africa and back to Hubedi Namani. This is Africa Digest. And that's all we have for you on Africa Digest this hour. For myself, Kopediwa Namani producer, Luanda Maome, technical producer, Charles Moyo, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. Feel free to send comments on the show. Send us an email at info at channelafrica.org. That's info at channelafrica.org. Alternatively, send an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Here is My Misses by Something Soweto taking us to top of the hour.
found it in love, so tired is it love, I found it again, when you call me your man, found it in smiles, oh leaving me proud, it's all we about, is our thing with no doubt, found it so good in your love, everybody's trying to get hold of it, but they ain't looking, the thing about this is that we understand it, I call it the real Relationship is my friend. So now, what are we gonna do about this love? That let's nothing through except hugs and kisses to no other misses but you. So now, what are we gonna do about this love? That let's nothing through except hugs and kisses to no other misses but you.